Well, let's get started. Thank you all for coming along to week four of our course. I hope you have found it encouraging so far. And we've got some really good studies ahead of us. And uh, so I hope you are, are finding food for your soul and, and uh, encouragement and challenge. Um, if it's not challenging, I don't think it's really from God. That's sort of that way, isn't it? That God challenges us and encourages us at the same time and lifts us up. And, and so we're going to continue digging into his word tonight. And uh, what have we done in the last in the last three weeks we've we've looked at the very real causes of depression and how it can have a physical effect on us as well as a mental effect we saw that by drawing near to god we can have joy and strength even in the worst circumstances and we've also seen what's really encouraging and will be fleshed out in in later weeks that depression is not an obstacle to being used by god and he delights to give us hope and to walk with us as we go through our journey. And ultimately, all of our joy and our strength is found in him. Now, this week, we're going to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in um, comforting us. And then the way the Holy Spirit uses the body of Christ, the church, to encourage us and to encourage each other in our, in our walk. Now, I've, I've got to say, I've found this a really difficult study. And I think part of the reason I found it difficult is because when talking about the Holy Spirit, I don't have much of a heritage. I grew up in the Uniting Church where the Holy Spirit wasn't discussed at all. Now, the Holy Spirit might be discussed in lots of Uniting Churches, but the Uniting Church tends to be little islands, right, each with a, a law unto themselves. And... And the, the one I grew up in didn't really talk about the Holy Spirit at all. Then when I was converted, I went into a group of fundamentalists who were probably conservative Anglican sort of side, and they didn't really talk about the Holy Spirit at all either. And it, so it wasn't really until I joined Calvary Chapel at the grand age of, I don't know, 30-odd, um, where I started to be taught about the Holy Spirit. And as I study the work of the Holy Spirit, I continue to see that the way the Holy Spirit works is a mystery. There are some very clear guidelines for us in how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit comforts, the Holy Spirit teaches, the Holy Spirit leads. But when you start asking the questions, how, 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 you get into that mystery of God that is just hard to define and our humanity goes, no, I want certainty. I want to know exactly how you're going to do it, Lord. And our Lord is beyond us. We wouldn't understand if he explained it to us, I suspect. So there's some fantastic truths for us, but there's also some great mystery in, in what we're going to study. So as we get stuck into it, we, we start off with the principle of going straight to Jesus for help. Jesus is alive, but he's not a physical presence with us, is he? So even as we study the scriptures and we see the way the disciples and people came to Jesus, we can't quite have that same experience. And as we'll see, we're reliant on the Holy Spirit. And then we've, we have some of those why questions again. 
But I want to start by just opening up a bit of discussion and, and, and the way that depression presents itself, both with internal and external challenges. Sometimes it seems that survival itself is on the line. And when we're in that mode, when we're in survival mode, lots of the fundamental things of life get difficult. The things that we're meant to be doing, the way where our lives are meant to be ticking over are all a bit difficult. So do you want to throw some things at me that become difficult when we're battling with survival? And just as a caveat, if you don't know what it's like to have depression, just think about someone in a, in a war zone who, who is battling survival and the things that just give way to that battle. Um, sleep. Sleep. <laughs> Absolutely. I know that one really well. Yep, sleep. That type of works both ways. So you can either get too much sleep or too little sleep. Yes. So you're never quite comfortable in sleep. So sometimes you use uh, sleep to escape and sometimes you use it where you can't. To, you, somehow you're so anxious you can't. That's right. You can't sleep. So we escape using sleep and then we feel guilty about it. And then what, what should we be doing while we're sleeping in the middle of the day? I'm asking myself that. Um, what things give way, right? That's time out of our day, isn't it? Mm. So what misses out when we're, when we're sleeping or when... Work and family. Work, family, yep. Time with God. Time with God, yeah. Self-care. Sorry, what? Basic self-care. Basic self-care, yep. Showering, basic hygiene, uh, an old goodies episode comes to mind there. Eating properly. Yeah, eating properly. Neglecting friends. Yeah, so we neglect friends. And uh, and those friends might include the fellowship. Can't think. Can't think, so we're not clear. Our, Our entire health can begin to suffer. And it's one of the one of the really interesting things. I, I remember hearing a doctor say that we are all only one health issue away from poverty. And it's a it's a very it's a very profound thought if you're cruising along and everything's going sweet, rather than standing on the uh, on the parapet of your castle and uh, and doing a Nebuchadnezzar and thinking, look what I've made. Be grateful. Because life can change fast. It can change really fast. And our, so our, our health can suffer. And when, you're, when your health is suffering and you're depressed, you start asking that question of who cares? Like, who cares about my health anyway? So you can purposely start um, or not dealing uh, with, with health issues. Uh, for me, every day of the week, a member of my family would ask me if I want to go for a walk. And 13 days out of 14, I say, no, thank you. Now, I know I should go for a walk. <laughs> I know it would be good for me in lots of ways. But I choose not to, and it's part of this whole mentality. Now, a very sobering statistic says that um, 
uh, sufferers of childhood abuse have a reduced life expectancy of 10 years. And that's because of uh, suicide, addictions, um, obesity. Um, so it's just that whole lack of caring for yourself that just ends up in a, in a shorter life. So it, it has a very profound effect. But a very important question for us is, do you want to get better? Is that up on the screen? Oh, good. Yeah. So do you want to get better? Now, you might be offended that I'd even ask that question. There's a propensity in all of us to say, oh, yeah, of course I do. Of course I do. But do we really? Now, and we have that story about Jesus at the, at the pool of Bethesda with the, with the man who couldn't get into the water. You'll remember that the angel stirred the water and, and people, the first one in, got healed. And Jesus said to the man, do you want, what do you want from me? You know, do you want to be healed? And he gave an excuse. Oh, I can't be. I can't be healed for these reasons. I can't get to the water first. I can't. But clearly the question was, you only have to ask. Jesus' attitude was, you only have to ask. I understand in myself this enjoyment is the too strong a word, but the comfort and the familiarity of depression. It becomes part of who we are. And it can become a a fellow walker in our travel in our travels rather than something that we really want to get rid of. So it's about maybe seeing the cost up front and deciding that we want to do something about it. But there's this principle that all we have to do is ask. Now, you know if you do a word study in the New Testament on the word ask, it's just going to come up popping everywhere. Jesus exhorts us to ask and we will find. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Ask because he already knows your needs. Ask because the Father wants to give you good things. Ask because it will be done by God in heaven. So there's this important principle of asking, and we'll, we'll see why as we go through this study. Let's have a look at um, Mark 19 and a man who asked. Sorry, uh, sorry Mark 9, sorry, 17 to 29. And rather than reading through it in one go, we'll just, I'll just try to, to read through it in bits and pieces. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I bought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. We see in this just a principle, and by the way, I better say it up front, I'm not suggesting that mental illness falls into the category of what this man has, right? Um, but I'm looking at this in terms of Jesus' character and the way he responds and the way we can respond the way Jesus responds um, to, to trials and difficulties in our lives. So we see instantly that there's this hopelessness in man to do anything about the circumstances 
of this boy. And even those who are closest to Christ couldn't do anything about it. They were ineffective and beaten. So the man comes to Jesus sort of quite despondent at first. I went to your disciples, but they couldn't cast it out. They, they could not. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long um, has it been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion. And Jesus said, if you can believe. So the man says, if you can do anything. And Jesus says, if you can believe. All things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus is just so compassionate, isn't he? He just desires to help, but he doesn't just desire that it would be like a drive-through. I was talking about my drive-through meals earlier, but about a drive-through, you know, drive-through, get healed, drive-through, get healed. He engages with people. It's not a cheap trick. It's an intimacy and a love that Jesus has for the people he meets. And he's frust- Jesus is frustrated at first at the faithlessness of of his own people. These are the people who Jesus is wanting to bring into glory with him. And yet he can't find faith in them. Now the man's response is fantastic because he says, he changes from saying, if um, if you want to, you know, uh, Uh, yeah, if you can do anything, to saying, Lord, I believe. That's an important thing because as we go through our study tonight, we're going to look at the role of the church in helping each other. But there's always an important principle in looking to the church for help, and that is we always look to Christ for help. Always go to Christ. Now, this man went to the disciples and was disappointed. He went to the disciples and they couldn't help. But Jesus could and Jesus would and Jesus did. So it's really important for us not to get disillusioned with what the church can't do, but start thinking about what Christ can do. Okay, so now one of the things that this does for people with depression, it's often really difficult to know what we should do in life. Everything seems really hard. Taking very basic steps can seem really hard. But we see in this, in Jesus himself, this principle of, if you look at the whole circumstance, if Jesus was going to sit there at that time and look at the whole problem of Israel, the whole problem of the sin in the world, 
what was required for redemption. That's despairing, right? When we sit back and we look at our lives and go, ah, work, family, commitments, church, um, service, the thing, money, the, the things I'm meant to be doing, it can be really overwhelming. What does Jesus do? He focuses on the one person in front of him, on the very next person to love in front of him. And there's just this principle in it for us that if, if we're going to sit back and, and try to solve the problems of the world, we're under-equipped and we are going to despair. But if we focus on the thing, the next thing right in front of us, we might find strength to do that. So it's a really important principle. Do what you can do. And whether that's in your family or if it's in the church. And as I say, there's a tendency to complain sometimes about the church, what it, what it does do, what it doesn't do. Well, we are the solution. Jesus says, you are my body. Do it. If you see the gap in something, do it yourself. I used to um, be very good at deciding what other people would be great at, what God was calling them to do. Um, and uh, it was very, uh, I'm sure God really enjoyed the help that I gave him in in uh, encouraging my brethren in the acts of service that they should do. But, um, but of course, the Holy Spirit comes around and says, well, why not you, Chris? Why not you? It's on your heart that this is missing. Why not you? How about you do it? So if you can believe, Jesus says. Now, it's a principle that's a bit hard for me. It doesn't, it doesn't sit with my temperament. But to approach anything in the spirit of hopelessness is to make it hopeless. To approach anything in the spirit of faith makes that thing become a possibility. Now, I don't quite know how God works behind the scenes, but I'm, quite, I'm pretty sure that if we approach him and say, this is a lost cause, this is never going to happen, well, first of all, we won't pray to start with, if we're thinking that. And then, and then God is perhaps going to look at our absence of faith and say, well, I'm going to teach you about my faithfulness, and then one day you'll come to me and say, Lord, will you? you know? And, and we will be exhorted to, to pray those prayers of, of trust and, and faith in him. And the father, meeting Jesus, he goes from thinking, oh, maybe, maybe he will, maybe he won't. Will you have compassion? Won't you? Will you help us or won't you? To saying, I believe. Lord, I believe. He wants more than just belief. He wants complete belief. Help my unbelief, he says. Yes, Pete. I wanted to share something about this, um, what it means to believe and what this guy is actually believing in. Yes. It's very similar to another passage I'm about to jump to, but when I see something like this, I ask myself the question, what is this father believing in? Mm. And he's, it's possible he's, he's believing in one of three things, roughly speaking, but firstly, either God can do this Yes. that's not hard for many of us to, to accept. Secondly that God wants to do this or is he been asked to believe that 
Thirdly, God will do this pretty soon. Which one of those three is it? And that all requires a different level of faith. And in this passage, it appears as though it's, it's only the first one. And the reason I say that is because in verse 22b, it says, but if you can do anything, if you are able to do anything, have compassion on us. Jesus says, of course, if you can believe that I am able to do anything. And there are times when that's all he wants us to believe. But there are also times when it's clear he wants us to believe he wants to, and he also will. Um, And the other passage that convinced me that at times Jesus only wants us to believe he's able to is in Matthew 9, and it's very explicit, because in verse 28 it says, And when he came, when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. They needed to have faith that he, he could do it. Not that he would, or that he was just about to. And to me, that's quite reassuring, because it's a low entry level. <laughs> God grows me over time when he might give me a promise. Peter, I want, I, I want to do this, and I, I will do this. What do, do, you want to, do you believe in these two? But, you know, he starts me off there. So... Yeah, I just wanted to share that with you guys. It means you're handing it over. You're, you're handing it over to him. That's right. You, you're capable of doing it. Yeah. But it, so just because he's capable of doing it doesn't mean he actually will do it. No, but you're, you're, he knows best, so yeah. you take care of it. Yeah. Exactly right. So there's this, this area is... And I've written on the bottom of my page here, it's not certainty that God will do what you're asking him to do. It's not about our positive mindset. It's not about how psyched I am, how convinced I am that God is going to do it. It's about certainty in his character and his love for you. His desire to do certain things for you, but his love for you, which includes maybe not giving you the object of what you're asking for because he's got a better plan. He's got something else in store. And if we pray knowing his character, then we are, in a sense, relieved of the outcome. And we can have rest and trust in God no matter what happens. And I'll share... Yes, Uh I had written here, prayer, cancer, God's will and rest. So when we found out that Kaz had cancer, there was a sense in which, okay, well, how am I meant to pray? Well, I didn't know how to pray, but accept that God's will would be done. And then as we opened up our needs and our prayer requests to the church and to to others... And we just knew that we had scores of people praying for us that God's will would be done. We found ourselves having complete rest in the fact that God's will would be done. And it didn't require great news. It didn't require turning corners. It didn't require cancer suddenly gone. Knowing that, and the reason why I say lots of people praying is because when it's just me praying, I 
second guess myself and I doubt and, and I have all that stuff. But when all you guys are praying, I think, well, God is going to deliver. And he's going to be the God he has said he's going to be. And so, to an extent, I was happy with any outcome when Kaz was sick. Now, I was happy theoretically and ahead of time. Uh, you know, if things had gone bad, I probably would have uh, changed my tone pretty fast. But, uh, but you, you don't know. And, but I, I was at rest with what God was going to do because he was going to be good to us. There's, there was no doubt at all in my mind that he was going to be good to us. So we, we see some very um, simple principles that we, we go through very quickly there. We must ask. Okay, we, we need to come to Jesus and ask. We must know that he delights to answer our prayers. That's in 1 John. And we must have faith in God. And the principle about faith in God is about who he is and who we are in him. Not about putting him in a box and saying what he's got to do for us. Now, when God reveals something to us, and and I think there is a, an escalation here that you see in the leaders of Israel, God spoke to them directly about what was required, what they were meant to do. And in a, in a sense, the faith that was required was to be obedient because God's way wasn't man's way. But the faith wasn't the same as ours in the fact that they were told what to do by God. We crave that kind of stuff, don't we? Wouldn't it be great if God was so direct with us? Oh, yeah. um, I, th- I think we would struggle, have the same struggles, funnily enough. And the leaders of Israel showed that they did have the same struggles, whether God was direct or not. Sometimes they were obedient, sometimes they weren't. So there are times, of course, where God is direct, God makes his will known to us and it's important that we walk in that and, and are obedient to that. Chris. Yes. Does that mean that it sounds a little bit to me a bit like resigning to the to the to your faith that God's will will be done and that's what you're doing in prayer. Is that what you're saying? In a sense it is, but you're entrusting yourself to God, not to the fates, not to the universe, not to unknown forces. You're entrusting yourself to God knowingly and thoughtfully at the same time as seeing where he's leading. So it might be that He's leading you clearly in one area of your life into an act of service or something like that. But in another area of your life, it's completely ambiguous. And I, I think there is truth in the verse that you know it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, brain, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And part of my difficulty with tonight was how does the Holy Spirit do that? How does he make our path straight? Just by being God I think is the answer. He has this mysterious, powerful, sovereign way 
of making our paths straight when we trust in him and when we acknowledge him in, in things. Do you think, though, that... Um, sorry to no, go, good. go on this a bit, but um, do you think that, that in a way that you could type and take that two ways? You could, you could see yourself in a type of... Um, what was the name of the guy that got eaten by the whale? What's his name? Jonah. Jonah, right. So you could be guided by God irrespective of your will because yep. you're a believer. Yep. Or you could just um, trust that God will get you there. Like either way, you're going to get there because you're a believer and God wants to see you get there. Huh. Is that... <laughs> I mean, type of... Do one's a battle... One's a battle mm. and one isn't. Because one's a resistance, one's a resignation. Yeah. To, mm. to surrender. I yeah. think um, when you used that word resign before, it made me think about I have to resign my plan and my thought of what his will should be. Oh, yeah. To, no, no, no. Get like that out of there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all him. And right. whatever his will is, I know, I trust his character that that's the best thing. And maybe my plan isn't. Um, and, you know, that I like the Proverbs, um, you know, him directing our path. Mm. You know, I like to, here's my plan. Okay, Lord, it's all yours. Scrap it and do what you want. Mm. Does that and help with what you It's not saying? so much him directing our paths, it's us getting onto his path. Yeah, yeah, I'm still struggling, but anyway, I'll keep just going for a bit. The second example you gave where it's almost like you just are at the mercy of the stream that you jump into and you don't make conscious decisions to follow God's will, I'm, not, I'm wondering is that something that's really a reality in life? Because we, we often do know the little next step of God's will and if we choose not to do it, then... Does that mean that we're going down that stream that you're calling autopilot or, or not really mm. consciously thinking? Or are we actively disobeying him by not doing his will? Therefore, it's going to be harder going down that stream because they're not doing what they are. So in, to. In, in, to put it into my own context and what I, I was trying desperately to avoid <laughs> <laughs> is, for example... Since I left, um, since I was made redundant about four years ago, um, my uh, interests, not interests, but the things that I've been good at uh, got nothing to do with engineering, right? You're changing. And so um, it's more um, community service focused or something. And in a million years, I would never choose that. And my skill set, very highly stacked on one side, plus the little bit of experience that I've got on the other side. Yeah. And I wonder whether I'm type of being forced by God to, hmm. to go down that, or whether, in fact, I should be still trying to use my wealth of experience. <laughs> so that's where I struggle. Okay, well, we're going to continue. I don't, I don't ask you to answer that. No, the Holy Spirit might yeah. answer it um, as, so, as we go through the study. So, um, so let's keep moving. But, but the whole principle of our responsibility versus 
the sovereignty of God and, and that interaction um, is, is tough. But in the end, I think we need to have, it gets down to a very childlike faith that says, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. And it needs to come with a certain amount of rest in it. And I've been talking to a, a friend who, um, who's going through Alcoholics Anonymous. And some of those guys, I know a couple of guys who have been through that program, they are some of the most chilled people I know on the face of this planet. Because they've, they've gone through a series of study and they've learnt that there's a creator and there's no point fighting against what the creator is trying to do. Now, there's Christians in the group and there's non-Christians in the group and some of those non-Christians and the Christians, their, their language is similar in some ways. But the Christians are going, entrusting themselves to a loving God and, uh, and just knowing that what God wants is good for them. And I think in middle-class Australia, we spend a lot of our time fighting against what God wants. And I mean that in me, in our church, in, in Western Christianity. Or many of us are more unhappy about what God's doing or not doing you know, then, then the rest of the world, you know, is much interested in. We fight against God a lot. You know, we say, oh, God's will. Oh, God's will be done. God's will be done. And then we're praying for something that we really want and we're anxious and we're stressed because things aren't happening the way we want. Well, maybe God's doing what he wants to do. If I can just loop it back to what you said originally, which was I can pray for, um, you said, when we found out Karen had cancer, you kind of go, right, well, God's will, or if we trust in his, his thing. And it wasn't, he said, it wasn't until I let others know that it actually almost expanded what that prayer meant or looked like. So when it comes to resistance or God's will or trying to get um, an answer or direction, I think it, it goes all back to wise counsel, confirmation of others, oh. input that you didn't expect, an unlikely you know, um, resource, an unlikely outcome that people can recognize in that. So it's not a, 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 your own journey. You know, it's not a, a, sol a solo no. journey. You know, it, it's a kayak, maybe, on the street <laughs> <laughs> with paddles. But yeah. it, it's opening it up to others for prayer, Absolutely. to seek confirmation here and in the body. I agree. I agree. There's very great comfort and, and we're going to see some of that coming out shortly. So um, we're going to quickly consider some of the, the, the ways or the different kinds of depression. So there can be, um, there can be spiritual depression as well. There can be um, what we would normally think of as a, a, a emotional depression and there can also be satanic attack. There can be a buffeting by Satan. And I, was, uh, I find reading about Martin Luther really fantastic. And, but one of the things he said that, is that my, my nighttime battles with the devil, they are much more bitter than my battles during the day. For my theological adversaries during the day, they only annoy me. They write these stupid theological treaties um, with these inane and inept theological arguments. I have to waste my time refuting them, in effect. But the devil, he continues, the devil is able to confront me with real theological arguments. The devil's better at theology than my opponents. And 
I just love the, the forthrightness of it, right? That's Martin Luther King. No, Martin Luther. Oh, right. The reformer. <laughs> the reformer. Um, okay, so there's different kinds of, of depression, and, and as we go through these verses on the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at the way the Holy Spirit can lead us into truth. So there's this issue of theology that we've been talking about and truth. So I'm going to read out some verses and uh, then you guys can tell me what element of the Holy Spirit um, is effectual in helping us with depression. So we'll start with the John 14 verse. If someone actually would like to uh, read that out, John 14, 15 to 18. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide in you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Okay, so that's... That's really lovely. So what are, the, what are the names given there to the Holy Spirit? Helper. Helper. Spirit yep. And we, we see elsewhere that he's called the Comforter. Mm-hmm. And where's he going to dwell? Mm-hmm. In us. Mm-hmm. Now, what, one of the verses that I always found a, a profound mystery because you spend your life just falling in love with Jesus, right? And um. And the more you read about him, the more you just, oh, I just want to hang out with this guy so much. Um, I want to walk with him. I want to work with him. I want to just hang. And, um, and then Jesus says in John 16, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And it's just a profound mystery to me that our experience as Christians is better with the Holy Spirit than with Jesus. Now, I think that's because of the Jesus being contracted to a span, being a single person in this very big world, um, and the Holy Spirit indwells in us. But I just love the fact that Jesus says, it's to your benefit that I go away. And I think that means to us that we should be having a rich relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. And, and certainly not... a a sideline, a sideline event. Um, okay, so how does the Holy Spirit help us and or comfort us? So I'm going to read the verse and you tell me. Romans 8.15. Uh, oh, these might not be on the screen. Uh, they are? Oh, jeez. There's last minute changes. I'm just... Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So how does the Holy Spirit help us in that verse? What do we see? He freed us from bondage. bondage. Yep. We are children of God. Yeah. And that we can cry out to the Spirit. Exactly right. We can cry out, call out to God. 
What about a couple of future elements there? Heirs with Christ. And what's the end game for us? Glory. glory. Okay, heading for glory. We're not heading for a dismal death. We're heading for glory. Okay, so the, the Spirit has given us the spirit of adoption. He, he witnesses to us that we are the children of God. He's made us an heir with Christ and we're heading for glory. Okay, 1 John 3, 24. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So how does the Holy Spirit help us or comfort us? Sorry? Abides in him and confirms that Christ abides in us, doesn't he? He in us, he in me, and me in him. The Spirit confirms that for me. Okay, John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. What does the Holy Spirit do? He teaches us, he helps us to remember what Jesus has said. These are important things for us, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit happening in our lives. We, we see elsewhere that the Spirit leads us and directs us. And some of um, Paul's questions earlier, um, you know, are fleshed out. Peter going to Cornelius's house was a very direct instruction by the Holy Spirit. Um, the calling of Paul and Barnabas was also a very direct instruction by the Holy Spirit. So we see the leading um, aspect of the Holy Spirit. John 6.63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. What is the, how does the Holy Spirit help us? He gives us life. Nothing short of life. Okay, John 16, 7 to 8. Uh, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. We covered this. For I do not. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, so it's verse 8 that I really want to touch on. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So on the surface of it, that doesn't sound very friendly. But how does that help us? How does that comfort us? Shows us our need. Yep. Teaches us the right way as well. Teaches us the right way, yep. And what did we learn last week about Psalm 23 and the shepherd's rod and the staff? Why, why is that prodding from the staff comforting to us? At least we know we've got someone looking after us. Yeah, we know that God is looking after us. Now elsewhere it talks about the father disciplines his children. The father disciplines those he loves. If he didn't discipline us, he wouldn't be loving us. So even his discipline is good news for us, which is a, a more difficult truth to, uh, to embrace. Okay. The principle building on these verses is that the spirit of truth will reveal the causes of depression to us, um, particularly if it is of a spiritual nature. 
So we, we might battle around with with physical causes of depression. I'm aware that you you know you can you can you can go to a myriad of different people and, and get their theories about why you're depressed. But if it's spiritual depression or if it is a buffeting, you can absolutely rely on God to reveal that to you. One of the things I love about our Lord so much is he, he is not fickle. He is not interested in us suffering um, more than we need to. He, he wants to let us know what work he is doing in our lives. So if, um, like, uh, um, if it's caused by sin, the Holy Spirit will convict us. We know that. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Who here hasn't been convicted of sin? So you, by being convicted of sin, you have the testimony of the Spirit in your life that God loves you. But the Holy Spirit will convict you. What do you do? You repent. That's the, that's the best thing. Now, talking about Alcoholics Anonymous again, step nine in their program is to make amends and to, to make amends to people who you've hurt over the years. And I would encourage you because I know the historical nature of depression sometimes. Sometimes it comes on fast. Sometimes it's a slow build. And sometimes it has a sinful origin. We've chosen not to forgive, for example. Um, on the first night, Regina talked about the role of bitterness in our lives or lack of forgiveness or this building up of, of anger and resentment and what that can do in our lives. So that can be historical, right? We might have decided years ago not to forgive someone. And that just can have a slow build. What do we do about it? Well, we, we confess or we repent of it. But I would just say, and, and um, AA, the definition was fantastic. Um, I wish I wrote it down. Um, uh, we don't confess things for our own sake. We don't confess things to get things off our chest. So we don't go to people and say, Paul, I've been harbouring resentment against you for many years because you really aggravated me back those years ago. So, mate, I just wanted to let you know. (laughs) I walk away going, geez, I got that off my chest and Paul's now burdened by something he never knew was a problem. Right? That's not confession. You don't confess for your own sake. You confess to rebuild a relationship and if it's simply getting it off your chest, it's not a good enough reason. Don't do it. In fact, it's, it's sinful. Um, so, um, uh, you know, you can go and shout at the beach or something to get it off your own chest, but don't lay your burdens on other people um, unless it's a fair dinkum. Um, a repentance is involved. Um, and I've had apologies like that made to me. You know, things I didn't even know about. But clearly I'd upset someone some years ago and they were now reminding me of it. Thanks. Um, I didn't know we had a problem. Uh, okay. Uh, good now. now I do. <laughs> now, I've got, now I've got a problem. Okay. So, so the Holy Spirit, if it's sin-based, he'll let you know. The, the, um, the conviction will come. If it's a satanic attack or a buffeting, well, we see that with Paul and his thorn in the flesh. And the Holy Spirit told him what was going on. And he confirmed what his plan was for Paul. And 
And so what did Paul do? He listened. He heard that God's grace is sufficient for him. He heard the reason why this buffeting was allowed was to keep him humble so that he would not be exalted. Right. Um, but then what is the sense we get in Paul after that, after he hears that? Does he, does he go and slam the door to his study? God, I've had enough of you. No, rest enters in, right? Rest enters the situation. Peace enters the situation. Because God himself has confirmed why he's doing this in your life. It's his plan. And you can only look at it in the context of God's love, right? His love is so thorough for you that we end up trusting in that love. As, as Job, I think it was, said, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. There becomes this adoration of God that just says, whatever you want to do, Lord. If I'm the clay in your hand that you want to make a cracked pot and smash it, if that's your plan, that's your plan for me. And, and I'm glad to be used by you in that way. That sounds bizarre, doesn't it? But it's a, a giving yourself into the hands of God and trusting in his love for you and his will as a good God. So we can, when the Holy Spirit reveals it, we can then rest in what he's doing. Now, if the problems are physical and or emotional, and both physical and emotional, they're both based in our bodies, right? They're both either in, they're in our brain or they're in our flesh. Well, then it's, we, we treat it like we would treat any other physical problem in the sense that we, we pray about it. We get medical help if necessary. We have a health plan. We can go on physical therapies. We can exercise, diet, meditate. Um, rehabilitation, counselling, support groups. We can do all of those things that are good for physical problems. Knowing that this particular physical problem embeds itself in our brain and our brain can be redeemed by concentrating on the good things, on, on handing over our anxieties and concentrating on the good things. Finally, in John seventeen seventeen, it says, Sanctify them by your truth, Jesus prays. Your word is truth. So there's this element to which we just keep coming back to the word. Now, I was um, quite relieved when I sought counselling many years ago. It was the first counsellor I went to as a Christian, Christian man. And, and, um, and after several weeks of seeing him, I was quite comforted when he said, I think you should see a doctor. He said, because lots of people I know who are spiritually depressed aren't in the word. They're not in fellowship. They're not serving. You are almost obsessive compulsive in the opposite direction. And so I think medication might be the go for you. right? And I was like when you are getting steps ahead in a, in a health plan, you go, Excellent. That's good. I was really encouraged by that. You know, if you had turned around and said, you know, you're a pagan or something, you know, I, I don't know, that would have been confronting. Um, but I, I was encouraged by that to, to see that um, it was a physical problem. Now, undoubtedly for me, it started off emotional. There's no, no doubt in the world that, um, that 
my depression started emotionally and moved into my brain and 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 began to inhabit it. Um, but the thing is, it doesn't matter what the cause is of our depression, the body of Christ has a role to play in helping us with it. So we have this aspect here of asking the brethren for help. And we'll... We'll skip through this, but in Romans 15, Paul talks about visiting. Oh, I should have seen. Whenever he's talking about going to Spain, he says that I want to come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. And just in this little harmless little thing, we see, however, that Paul was not beyond asking for help. He wasn't beyond asking for physical help. He wanted means, but he wasn't beyond asking for fellowship and just the comfort of the brethren to help him on his journey. Now, why is asking for help important? Guys, I'm asking you, why is asking for help important? We're not mind readers. We're not mind readers. Yep. There, are, there is an opportunity for someone to help you. Yep, opportunity for somebody to help you. So a service. So, <coughs> yep, exactly right. Why else? Well, by asking asking someone to help, you're actually creating an opportunity for that person to actually bless you, mm. which then in turn blesses them as well, being able to help you. Mm. Yep, that's right. And we, we're, we're told to carry one another's burdens if we can. Absolutely. And also a sense of hope, a sense of hope that something's going to change. Yes. Yeah, exactly right. Sense of hope. And also humility, like pride will stop us from asking help. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and it it is one of those aspects, that aspect of, of humility, that we're asking for help. It means that we are ready to recognise that we need help. Not sit there quietly in our pride and go, geez, if somebody would just notice and do something about it, you know, why aren't people helping me? You know, um, we'll get to a few of those things in a moment. Paul was ready to humble himself and to ask. He recognised his own need. Now, how do people with depression hope their church will support them? Okay, fantastic. I found this really relieving. Okay, so let's just go through what people responded in the survey. Um, So these are people who have struggled with depression. What did they want? Love, true fellowship, um, sharing weaknesses, spending time, empathy, practical support, acceptance, listening. Almost 100% of respondents desire the church congregation to demonstrate love towards them in some way. The majority of Christians uh, with depression hope for encouragement, uh, personal encouragement and in Christ, Bible study, focus on Bible truths. People also hoped that the church would probably get better. So this isn't just focusing on our church, this is the church in general, would get better at understanding depression and the leadership of churches understanding it and, and helping one another with it. But 40% of respondents wanted to know above everything that they were being prayed for. Right Now that's really huge. of people just wanted to know that they were being prayed for and then lack of judgment. And as I went through those things, I thought none of those are extraordinary. 
Nothing on that list leaps out and says, that's hard. Right? Because in the back of my mind is, oh, if I get engaged, you know, I'm going to have to give up loads of time. I'm going to have to spend my money. I'm going to, you know, it's going to be a big burden. But when I go through that list and people's responses, what I saw was nothing more than being Christ-like. They're not asking for anything more than we walk this journey together as pilgrims. And we just love one another. Right? Loving one another, you know, is, is shown in lots, of, in lots of different ways. Some people did say, love it when people drive me places or have cups of coffee, stuff like that. But there's nothing in here that's really hard. Okay? Maybe some time. But mostly just thoughtfulness. Mostly just having the mind of Christ to, to follow up with people. Okay. So uh, make the point there. Don't cry out for help. Ask for it. Because signals don't work. Now, um, People do lots of weird things when they're depressed, right? Uh, I don't think I put it up on the screen. But but our kids are cutting themselves. And I used to get drunk as a young man. And, and anger and isolation and risky behaviours, right? These are, are silent things that are really a cry for help. And yet people don't see them, right? And And I remember as a kid... I used to sit in my bedroom and I used to bang my head against the wall. It'd be 9 o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night and I'd just be going bang, bang, bang on the wall. But it turns out our house was really well built because no one ever heard it. So here's me sitting in my room. Woe is me. Trying to send signals. But no one even knew. Ask for help. Right. Now, why don't people know what we, we were talking earlier? The world is a busy place. Right? It's busy. There's so much noise going on. We, we don't have an insight into each other's lives like we used to. Distance. We're not living as, as villages anymore. As, you know, even neighbours you hardly know anymore often. Um, you know, all of this is breaking down. And... And so people aren't even seeing, even our houses are bigger, right? So, so my little example there, that's right. And we know it's true. We can come home and find every member of our house in a different room looking at a different screen. So how we have to take responsibility for our mental health then. You know, and say, I need help. I need time. I need your time. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to talk to you about my day, even though I don't want to. All that kind of stuff, because the signals don't get seen. Now, the other thing is that people, when they do see the signals, might just feel completely inadequate to help. And think, oh, geez, am I going to make it worse? You know, I was told about someone recently. What do you do? Is the question, what do we do? And then someone says, oh, you, know, you don't want to push them over the edge. Well, you go, oh. So we're, we're all just wallowing in our inadequacy, <laughs> right? Um, 
pray. Uh, I mean, pray. If you're the person trying to help, then 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 pray and 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 take gentle steps to, to help. If if they're on your heart, try to help. Um, the other one is I've asked and they said they were fine. Um, you know, I had a game going with someone for a little while. I'd say, how are you? I'd say, great. I'd say, that's great. And I'd keep walking. And I knew it was a game. And they were glad that I didn't get all depressed on them, quite frankly. Um, you know, I could have told them, well, you know, jeez, <laughs> I don't know how much longer I'm going to be on this planet. But they were happy to hear that I was great. So move on, right? And we, we play these games. Now... I just make the point there that the the movement, are you okay? Are you okay is fantastic, but I'm not okay is way better, right? Going to someone who loves you and you love them and saying I'm not okay is way more powerful. And I would say just take it, do it, you know, do it. Um, Now, I've also said that unique times of life, changes happen in all of us, right? We uh, did I put the points up on the screen? Yeah. Oh no, I didn't with the kids. Oh yeah, because yeah, because right. So, so teenage girls, right? Teenage girls act out in some way, and everyone says, "Oh, that's normal teenage girl behaviour." Right? Teenage girls are meant to be like this. So if they if they are like this, well, what's what's to see? You know, what's to see? Um, uh, I can tell you, well, physical and mental things can be behind those swings. Uh, boys, they, they withdraw and people say, well, that's normal teenage behaviour for a boy, right? We all remember as teenage boys, if, if our mum said to us in the afternoon, how was your day at school, we'd grunt at them and keep walking or say, what's for afternoon tea or where's the food or what's for dinner? Um, or, you know, why isn't the cupboard full, right? So boys don't communicate, right? And they don't want to communicate. And so then they withdraw and we say, well, that's normal. Now, it might be normal. It also might be really bad. Um, So your parents, we all, with each other, we're not psychology experts, although some are here, um, and, and we are all unique and as parents, we haven't raised our children before, right? We've got unique, we're unique, they're unique. It's not happened before. I often laugh when people say, oh, I've treated all my kids the same. I think, <laughs> really? I've treated my kids entirely different based on their needs, based on their personality types, based on, yeah, what they need from me and entirely different. My parents did the same. They were wise to do so. My brother was fantastic with money. I was hopeless with it. Are they going to give me 10 bucks for my pocket money if they, you know, I'm going to blow it on lollies. Why would they do that? Right? So we give our kids individual attention. We, we don't rattle them out like clones, um, you know, and, but we haven't, we haven't raised them before. They haven't been teenagers before. We ha- I haven't been a 45 to 54-year-old before. Well, except for the last four years, right? So, okay, so we're all doing life for the first time. We're not practised at it necessarily. And that makes things difficult. And it means that people don't understand us and we don't understand them. We've got to talk. 
we've got to talk. I'm not going to do the whole thing and say, oh, men have to get really touchy-feely and start talking about everything all the time. I think men and women are made differently, but men need to know when is the time to talk. Right? They just have to be attuned for that moment. Right? Now is the time to talk. Have the relationships there so that you can talk if you want to. Okay. The good news about what the about what people with depression need from the church is met because people who don't have depression, Christians who don't have depression, um, ah, I've moved two slides ahead or a slide ahead, um, they want to do those things. They want to pray. And when, when depressed people were, were asked how did they receive help, well, they, they answered in those really positive ways. They did receive love. And in fact, 40% of the respondents said that they received more love than they imagined that they would possibly get. Right? Which is just absolutely fantastic. As against, you'll notice on the bottom of that, 100% of people who responded that they received no help from their congregation had not told anyone in their congregation. But that to me is confirmation that we need to talk. We need to speak. We need to ask for help. We also need to be listening properly to each other, right, when we are talking with people, not just having another conversation and moving on. And there's a great liberty in Christ in, in in the way our body works together, right? We don't have to have a serious conversation every time we talk. Uh, we would that would lead to despair in itself, wouldn't it? If we're just serious all the time, we need to joke. We need to we need to laugh with one another. We need to give each other a a, a break, and and to be for each other what we need. Um, but the church is ready and willing to do it, which is really encouraging. Um, okay. Another thing that was really uh, really staggered me was that 88% of Christians thought it was possible to have a strong faith yet still be depressed. Only 2% thought otherwise. Now, so there's this really great notion in the church that you're going to be uh, judged if you come out and tell people that you're depressed. And don't get me wrong, I'm absolutely certain that happens everywhere. Uh, I'm certain that I've judged people, um, uh, you know, and thought, well, how can you have that problem if you're as spiritual as you seem, right? But Christians, the the ones certainly that answered this survey, are very willing and ready to walk in grace with people, even if they don't understand how it all works. They're really ready to extend grace and to believe that a person with depression could still be really strong in the faith, which is, I think, really encouraging. Okay. You see some quotes there for, from some folks about what helps that they received. Gentle encouragement is what helped me the most, along with being treated like I was loved and valued. That's just normal Christian behaviour, isn't it? They gave me truth taught me who I was in Christ, got alongside me and loved me and lived the way Jesus showed us to be, spent time with me, took walks with me and listened. More people said listened, encouraged, encouraged in the word. Just pointing to Christ. They checked in on me, sent a text message um, and lots of coffees. 
So, and lots of coffees at the end there. They prayed for me, had many coffees, encouraged me to stay in the Word. So just in pointing each other towards Christ. Now, one of the things I wanted to also point out, and because we often we often go through these, although this verse these verses were quoted, um, I'm sure in church just in the last couple of weeks, but. We are used to thinking about the body of Christ and the way it works together. We're used to thinking about the gifts all kind of meshing together and us being an effective body under the head, Jesus Christ. But do we pick up in the 1 Corinthians 12 passage there in verse 22? No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. I hadn't really seen that before. Verse 25... Um, so that there would be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. So there's this element, this truth, that all of the people that make up our fellowship are important to the fellowship. It might not be easy to directly see, right? But it's true. Every person is important. The idea here that came through for me was that we need to be treating others like we're treating Christ. Every person. Um, There isn't a caveat on there that says, um, with regards to others, that the others is just some people. Others is all people in the fellowship. Now, we're not... To be clear here, we're not talking about people in the fellowship who um, might be just bad influences or tempting people to go astray or foul doctrine or um, or leading people into sin, right? We're, we're talking about the fellowship of, of believers. Um, but difficult people, the point is difficult people, and sometimes that might present as one of the things I just said, difficult people... Um, are important to the fellowship. And I include myself in the difficult people. And maybe you see yourself at sometimes being difficult as well. Now, in Colossians 3, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. I just think it's really important we, we understand this idea. And then Jesus also talked about giving the most honourable places at the table to the, to the wealthy, right, to the prominent members of society, and not doing that, but treating all people the same and honouring the people, the humble. So we need to be aware of that. Our, in our flesh, our propensity is always to deal with the popular. It's always to hang with the with the the popular, the wealthy, the rich, the powerful, right? We've got to get over that in the spirit and and treat all people like they are Christ's children, Christ's brothers and sisters. We know the injunctions in Scripture about loving one another, right? I don't need to go through those. God is love. If we say we know God and we don't love, we don't know God, okay? So there's some very blunt Scriptures about the way we should love one another, Clearly, God loving us, us loving God, will 
bring the fruit of love towards the people around us. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We need to love one another. Now, just when thinking about the body, the body isn't limited to this group of people, right, or this congregation. The body of Christ is a, not all the skills, not all of the, the wisdom, not all of the gifts of the whole church um, of the body of Christ might be found within this building, right? So we might need to go searching um, to get help that we need, right? Um, but start with the people that you love and they love you. We just are going to finish on um, uh, Philippians 2, 1 to 4, and just see that the principle of the Holy Spirit, and we saw the way the Holy Spirit ministers his ministry to us and how important that is, but often it is by manifesting himself within his people. And it makes sense, right, that if, if the Holy Spirit is leading us into the image of Christ, if he's leading us, if he's transforming our heart and mind to being like Christ, then... Um, then we are going to be like Christ to the people around us. Okay, so Philippians 2, 1 to 4. Someone would like to read that for us? Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, in one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look, look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Okay, so God has designed us to be in fellowship and to bless everyone in it and through it. And we see in this passage that as we become like Christ, we'll bless each other um, like Christ. Now, we saw in previous weeks that we also have common bad experiences. And when we share those experiences... We receive the fellowship of being like-minded. We receive the fellowship of others that have struggled in the same way. And we gain joy and comfort and strength from them. How does it actually happen? Now, in this passage, it talks about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so that really is the key that the Holy Spirit is central to his personal ministry within us and then the Holy Spirit is central to the ministry of the church one to another. It's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, not just with the Holy Spirit, but with each other in the Holy Spirit. And what comes with that? Affection and mercy. And having received affection and mercy, we're able to give it. I'm reminded as depressed people people who experience depression, I should say, sometimes giving anything is really hard. We feel we don't have the energy to do it at all. But giving anything that God has given you is good stewardship with the thing that God has given you. Remind of the story of the lady with the mite, right? She just had that single tiny coin to drop 
in the uh, in the box. And I would just encourage you guys to think, even when you don't think you can do anything, you might go well, an SMS, an SMS to a brother or sister to send them something funny or to cheer them up or ask how they're going. I have a friend who sends me stupid things all the time. <laughs> Sorry, man. No, I'm looking straight through you, Paul. <laughs> and um, and uh, and sometimes I wish you would get back to work, but but I often but I often feel it's it's it brings cheer to my day, right? So we might not have a lot to give, but we can give little things. Okay, we can give little things. Um, I did want to say there uh, something, though, about esteeming others higher than yourself. How can that be interpreted to a depressed person? You put yourself down even more from the back row, someone very wise up the back. We put ourselves down even more. It's not about putting ourselves down, is it? We are asked to be humble, certainly. We are not asked to be shattered, <laughs> right? We're, not, we're certainly not asked to be condemned, right? That, they, that's Satan speaking to you. Lifting others up is about lifting others up, making them more important, making them more like Christ, lifting them up. They're a brother or a sister in Christ. They're a child of God. Lift them up. That doesn't require me going lower at all. Unless I'm already too high, you know, in my own mind, and I, I need to be humble, okay? So it's not that relationship. Don't say, ah, oh, to be a good Christian means, means smashing myself into oblivion so that everyone else is higher. Well, okay, fine. Uh, but that's not what the Scripture's asking you to be, not asking you to do that. Lifting others up is encouraging. And who's encouraged by someone being made to feel higher or special because the person treating them that way hates themselves so severely, you know, like, like, oh, you're, you're better than me because I'm pathetic. Well, that's a low bar, isn't it? You're special to me because you're a child of God. You're a child of God. That's why you're special to me. So seeing value in other people uh, is really important and it doesn't come at our expense it's a blessing that we give to other people. Well, you sort of give themselves because as you esteem others, they're esteeming you. Mm-hmm. you know, yeah. It's a, um, it's a reciprocal arrangement, isn't it? If we love each other the way Christ loves us, yes. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Esteeming others isn't about uh, lowering yourself. Mm. It's about not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about other people. Absolutely. And Great point. especially when you're depressed, at least for me, it is usually because I'm self-focused. Mm. And so if you're focused on others, then mm. that lifts you up as well. Yeah. But not just focusing, it's like encouraging others. Yeah. Because if you put a word of encouragement out to another person, it also helps you. Mm. Because sometimes the person, you can see a change in them, mm. and that encourages you. So mm. it becomes that reciprocal mm. stuff. Because I would say, oh, I'll just focus on somebody else, and then you're doing this. You know, I'm just focusing on everybody else, everybody else. 
you still have to go at some point <laughs> before applying the mask somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. So you, yeah, it's that encouragement I find it. That's if somebody says something encouraging to me, I reciprocate with even a thank you. Mm-hmm. They feel good about the word of encouragement they give me, you know, and vice versa. Yeah. yeah, and when you're able to encourage somebody, you're encouraged because you're like, hey, the Lord can still use me. That's right. That's right. Even though I'm yeah. at where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a good point. Yeah. But, uh, flattering is not you. <laughs> no. No. No, no, no. No. Nice to no, 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 that's Flattery right. No. Is false. No, and it's I know, yeah. but people still do it even within a Christian and you know the truth that it's not true. I mean about myself or about other people. And then it leads on to gossip. Yeah. It leads on to because it's not true, leads on to something else and so I just you never hmm. compliment anybody, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, That's it's right. not like that. I'm kidding. But, uh, <laughs> you just keep quiet. Oh, what were you going to say? I was going to say, I think it's important not just to love and encourage others. You learn to love and encourage others. Yeah, back. back. No, 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 that's right. <laughs> but you need to do it just because you love them and you want to encourage them. And if you get it back, then that's awesome. But it's still, like, equally as good as you do. It's not better for you to do Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that principle um, that, um, you know, that we could even be entertaining angels unaware. Yeah. Right? And the point is unaware, right? You may not know. Now, I, I've been fellowshipping with most of you guys for a few years, so I'm, I've got a pretty good hunch. You're, you're not angels. But, um, uh, but, uh, but the, the principle is we don't need to know and we don't need to know the... the the um, the outcome, the fruit, the fruit happens in people's lives apart from us, and we might never see it, except when we get to heaven and the Lord rewards us and says that bore fruit, and you didn't have the joy of knowing it in your lifetime, but it bore fruit, which I, I find really encouraging. Um, okay, so a key element was the lack of judgment um, that that uh, people were after in the church, and. And I do just want to uh, make note again from uh, from my friend and his Alcoholics Anonymous group. He he said to me once, and I almost drove off the road. I was sort of half angry at, at first when I heard it, because he's been a Christian for a thousand years, and and um. But he said that Alcoholics Anonymous is the way the church should be, and I just got rah, you know, really. It really annoyed me, and then I. But then I calmed down. And I said, "Why? You know why? No judgment. People who accept each other the way they are. People who expect each other to be sinners and to fail, but who don't encourage failing in any way, shape, or form. They don't encourage sin, but they expect it." And I think, and, and the, the outcome of that is a group of people that come and share and say, I've had a good week, I've managed to go without a drink. And then the other guys say, fantastic, well done, well done. And then another guy says, well, I had a drink. And so now I'm back to two hours sober. And in fact, I had a drink on the way to the AA meeting, which they often do. And, and the group doesn't go, oh, jeez, you know, 
am I going to have to bring in church discipline? You know, we're going to have to discipline you in some way. They just get on with it. Get on with the fellowship. And it's a really powerful thing. Needs wisdom, needs discernment. We, we are to encourage each other in holiness, but doing it in a way that is loving and supportive and and recognising that we are all sinners. We're still, we still sin. Um, we are sinners saved by grace. That's the second half of the sentence I'm always going to try to remember to use. We are saved by grace, so it's not hopeless. But we still sin. And we shouldn't be surprised by each other's sin when we do. Okay? If we find ourselves, oh, oh, woe is me, oh, shock. You know, when someone confesses sin, we're just sending a message to each other and to the world that the Christ doesn't know what to do with a sinner. Christ is perfectly aware um, of, of, of loving us and, and perfectly capable of just flooding us with his love. Proverbs 12.25, so the, I just want to finish with, with this very short verse. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. It is not hard for us as a fellowship to give each other good words, to encourage each other, to love each other, uh, without flattery to say, you did that really well. You know, thank you guys for making me coffee today. Thank you for our pastor who's painted this whole building and built walls and doors and and everything else. Thank you for doing those things. It's encouraging, isn't it? A good word makes our heart glad. It's a very simple, very simple thing. So hopefully tonight you've seen that our beautiful Lord Jesus is very willing and ready to help us. He's filled us with his spirit that we may be helped and comforted directly by God. But he's also given us the body of believers to help and comfort us as we journey together. And we're also able to demonstrate the love of God to each other, right? In the body, in love, in unity, in fellowship. Now, next week, we are going to be looking at a really serious topic, but it's going to be a heap of fun. I had real joy doing next week. We're going to be looking at guilt and shame and how they work in, in the Christian. But as I say, I had real fun preparing the, the lesson as I thought about all the stupid things that make me feel bad. Oh, it was such a relief to get them off my chest. So, um, uh, so, so, um, so it should be a really encouraging um, message next week. So let's pray and finish up, shall we? Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for calling us together. We thank you that you've uh, not left us as orphans, but you've given us your spirit to live within us, to bind us together in unity and in fellowship. We thank you that you are intimate with us, that when we are completely isolated and alone, you are the powerful God, the still small voice that still speaks to each and every one of us. We thank you that you journey with each one of us individually and you also do it corporately. We thank you that uh, through your word you encourage us and you remind us of what Jesus has done and the way 
you have worked through history with your people. We thank you for the comfort that it brings us. And Lord, may our fellowship be sweet and may we comfort and encourage one another as we journey together. In Jesus' name, amen.